Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to the dirt. How dare you? <laughs> a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Amber. And I'm Anna. And what's on wait, this doesn't <laughs> no. work at all. So I was gonna I was gonna okay. yes and so, you, but so I know, I know, and you couldn't. Ha. Couldn't. So um we a little peek behind the curtain here. Um I we just recorded another episode and before this one, I had to put on a sweatshirt because it is so cold in my apartment. So how are you doing, Anna? It's so hot. <laughs> it's supposed to get up to 107 here today. I'm a little sweaty. My cats are essentially liquid. It is summer in our shared hemisphere. And I wanted to research something that might make me feel slightly cooler. So this, this week, week, we're talking about ice cream. <laughs> oh, Wait. Oh, no, we're talking about Arctic archaeology. Okay. All right. Okay. Enough of my coups. No more coups for me. So. Coup. I was doing a coup for you. Oh. 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 Much like when we did African empires, we're going to acknowledge up top that the Arctic is a huge, complex region with lots of different cultures and ecosystems. Yes, different ecosystems. And so we're not going to be able to get to every aspect of this topic today or ever. But, hey, that just means more cool episodes at a later date. Yeah, absolutely. So for our purposes, the Arctic means the polar region located at the northernmost part of planet Earth. This region consists of the Arctic Ocean, adjacent seas, and parts of Alaska, now part of the United States, Finland, Greenland, which belongs to Denmark, apparently, Iceland, northern Canada, Norway, Russia, and Sweden. So, let's get started with one of the most contentious topics in the study of the Arctic, the peopling thereof. The peopling of the Arctic. And, and from there, the Americas. And, and eventually the Americas, yeah. Yes. So, <clears throat> North and South America were the last continents to be populated by humans, but the actual process and routes by which people reached the Americas has been the subject of hot debate for a very long time. <laughs> DNA studies have confirmed that the first Americans were the result of mixing between ancestral East Asian and Northern Eurasian populations. Um, this founder population found its way to Eastern Beringia. Beringia. Growing up, we called it Beringia. Not growing up like I'm from there, but like it was <laughs> I, the first time I heard it was Beringia. Beringia. Uh... I I mean you could make an argument for Berengia. I, I won't. Okay. Won't. 
And after additional population splits traveled south of the continental ice sheets covering Canada sometime between 17 and a half and 14 and a half thousand years ago. And what happened? What was happening around them? Oh, was that the younger dryers? No, I think that was um, it's the, the last glacial maximum. That was the that was the beginning of deglaciation. Yeah, which it's the I end of the last glacial deglaciation maximum. in my freezer this weekend. <laughs> Note for later. <laughs> okay. So first up, what is Berenja? <laughs> so this is this comes from the National Park Service website. There is not the Berenja National Park. No, no, sadly um, no. I'd go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what? So, Paranja is the land and maritime area between the... Wait. Lena. Wait. No. What? It's it's real. It's still there. Yes. What? It's just not, it's just not a land bridge anymore. Whoa. So, okay. Paranja is the land and maritime area between the Lena River in Russia and the Mackenzie River in Canada. Are they besties and marked on the north by 72 degrees north latitude in the Chukchi Sea and on the south on the tip of the Kamchatka Peninsula. Mm -hmm. Toward the end of the last ice age, hey, call back to a couple minutes ago. (laughs) Yes, but also our climate change episode. Yes. The earth experienced prolonged frigid conditions. In the northern region of the earth, Glaciers began to form. As more and more of the Earth's water got locked up in glaciers, sea levels began to drop. In some areas, it dropped up to 300 feet. Yeah, so coastlines went, then expanded. Yep. If you sat real still, you could hear them making that sound. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The land beneath the Bering Strait became exposed and a flat, grassy, treeless plain emerged, connecting Asia to North America. This exposed land stretched 1,000 miles from north to south. As the Ice Age ended and the earth began to warm, glaciers melted and sea levels rose. Beringia became submerged, but not all the way. The Diomede Islands? Yeah. Or Diomede, where, but... Where are these? Are these... Off Russia and Canada. Okay. The Privilof Islands are off of... Yeah. I- I'm going to make some assumptions here with the Diomede Islands, the Pribilof Islands of St. Paul and St. George mm-hmm. and St. Lawrence and King Island still poke out of the water. Yep. Yeah. So there's still a little bit, a little bit there. Just there. Mm-hmm. Hey, little bumps. Yeah. And so let's talk about the overland slash interior route hypothesis. Yeah. So these are the two positions that people tend to take when they talk about the peopling of the Americas, people moving through the Arctic regions to the Americas. And so we will present to you listeners both sides of the argument and then go from there. All right. Open a middle school textbook. Go do it. (laughs) Got one? Okay. So open to the chapter on how our species migrated to the Americas, and you'll most likely see... An image of people in furs trekking over taiga and tundra, the lost world of Beringia. The land bridge, now submerged, once linked Siberia to North America. For years, the standard story was that hunter-gatherers from Siberia crossed it on foot when the glaciers retreated enough at the end of the last ice age to open an ice-free corridor. 
Beringia has been exposed multiple times over the past several million years um, during various ice ages when sea levels dropped, but it was really only the last one that we were here. Yeah. Yep. Yep. There just weren't humans before then. So other things were popping back and forth. We will get um, there. Oh, will we? We will. It's sometime during the end of the last ice age that humans began their move from Siberia into Beringia and eventually Alaska. The interior route has been the dominant mode for dull. The dominant model for decades. Next up, we got the Kelp Highway. <laughs> um, so the, the next we've got the Coastal Route. Highway Often- to Kelp. <laughs> I want a highway to Kelp. <laughs> You're fired. Good not. So the Kelp Highway model has gained traction, particularly in the last couple of years. It suggests that people from northeastern Siberia followed the coast by boat, including along the sea ice at times, around the northern Pacific and all the way to the Americas, continuing down the coast potentially as far as modern-day Chile, which I tried to yes. convince my coworker is pronounced child. <laughs> You're mean. You are a troll. She's like, she's like, is it is it Chile or Chile? Which do I say? And I was like, I think you'll find it's child. <laughs> I've heard it all three ways. <laughs> the resource-rich waters, full of fish, off the shellfish, coast of seals, and kelp, plus birds overhead. Because remember, this was before the Reagan administration when all the birds was re- were replaced by drones. Would have sustained the explorers. Both models agree on some crucial points, particularly that individuals from northeastern Siberia traveled eastward one way or another to populate the Americas. The genetic connection between ancient Siberian and first American populations has been well established within the last half decade, thanks to successful sequencing of ancient DNA from both sides of the Pacific. There is also agreement that the travel took place sometime within the last 25,000 years. (laughs) Narrowing it down. That's when, when we're looking at the genetic data, scientists see that the Siberian and first American populations became genetically isolated. Mm-hmm. They didn't call their genetic friends anymore. No. Which brings us to a review of much of the most recent data from both camps by a team of researchers published in 2018. The review looked at archaeological, paleogenetic, and geological data published previously both for and against the interior and coastal routes. The team's conclusion. Simmer down, coasties and landlubbers. It's possible. Y'all are both right. Review co-author Ben Potter, an anthropologist at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks, summed it up this way. Quote, we can't exclude either the coastal or interior route. Both could be used, actually. I suspect both probably were used. But then again, that's speculation. And we shouldn't be as firm as some have been that we know the answers now. For example. When much of the planet's water is frozen in ice sheets, sea levels tend to drop. But on a much more localized level, the sheer weight of glaciers can squash the land beneath and around them. This is so cool. Melt the glaciers and... Ta-da! The ground rebounds, springing up. The result? Some coastlines from the last glacial maximum, the LGM, are actually above current sea levels. Yeah! Thanks to something called isostatic rebound. Yeah, so when the ice isn't so static anymore. I made a joke. 
And you made the correct face. Let's keep going. All the sites found so far have been at least 1,600 years younger than interior sites. And the style of the artifacts associated with these coastal sites appears to be derived from older material found in the interior. Yeah. Then there's the lifestyle issue. Of our new magazine that's coming out. Hey. Hey. (laughs) All archaeological evidence from northeastern Siberia and Beringia suggests that people living there were hunting megafauna, bison, horse, and mammoth, not megafish. There is no evidence of a maritime tradition in these populations, which are genetically closest to the people who did eventually make it to the Americas. But as archaeological projects continue in this area, we'll continue to learn new things that might unmuddy those kelpy kelpy waters. Last November, for example, a separate team advocating for the kelp highway model noted that much of the evidence for the intrepid prehistoric seafarers from Asia all the way down to the coast of the Americas was likely in sites now underwater. Isostatic rebound is again highly localized, and much of the coastline that would have been provi- that would have provided pit stops on the Kelp Highway is indeed currently under the sea, down where it's wetter. <laughs> Underwater archaeology projects could turn up new evidence that boosts or torpedoes the coastal route. Yeah, so we have established now that we don't really know how people got to North America, but they did by around 14 and a half thousand years ago. But as that ice age ended and glaciers melted, the sea levels rose, flooding the Beringia land bridge. And then after that, archaeological evidence suggests that the next major wave of people arrived about 5,000 years ago, likely by boat. And this is the group of people studied in an article published in the journal Nature in June 2019. So recently. Yeah. And reviewed by Life Science. People continued arriving in the Americas after that first wave. About 800 years ago, the ancestors of the modern-day Inuit and Yupik showed up, and within 100 years, the paleo group from 5,000 years ago had vanished, according to archaeological evidence. So what happened to this, quote, vanishing group? To learn more, researchers, including study first author Pavel Flegontov, possibly Flegontov, unclear, a faculty member of science in the Department of Biology and Ecology at the University of Ostrava in the Czech Republic, dug into the genetics of this enigmatic people. The team received permission from modern indigenous groups to take very small bone samples from the remains of 48 ancient individuals found in the American Arctic and in Siberia. The scientists then ground these bone samples into powder so that they could extract and study DNA. Then, the researchers analyzed the genomes of 93 modern individuals of indigenous heritage from Siberia, Alaska, the Aleutian Islands, and Canada. For good measure, the researchers looked at previously published genomes from these regions too. The researchers looked for rare genetic mutations that the paleo group had passed down and found that that paleo group left a hefty genetic footprint. Their genes are found in modern people who speak the Eskimo Aleut and Nadene languages, which includes Athabascan and Tlingit communities from Alaska, northern Canada, and the U.S. West Coast and Southwest. The scientists generated so much data that they could build a comprehensive model explaining ancient gene exchange between Siberia and the Americas. This model shows that Nadene-speaking people, people of the Aleutian Islands, and Yupik and Inuit in the Arctic all share ancestry from a single population in Siberia related to that paleo group that came over 5,000 years ago. 
Moreover, the ancestors of the Inuit and Yupik people didn't just venture from Siberia to North America once. They went back and forth. Well, this article says like ping pong balls, but probably they went back and forth like people moving back and forth in a geographic area, crossing the Bering Strait at That's least three times. That's how I describe times. ping pong. <laughs> So first, these ancient people crossed as that original paleo group to Alaska. Then they returned to Chukotka, Siberia. Third, they traveled to Alaska again as bearers of the Thule culture, the predecessor to the modern Inuit and Yupik cultures of Alaska, the Arctic, and High Arctic. During their stay in Chukotka, a long stint that lasted more than a thousand years, the ancestors of the Inuit and Yupik mixed with the local groups there. And so we will also include a couple of additional articles in our show notes on some of these uh, studies that trace the genetics of the peopling of the Americas. But for now, I want to talk about the hyena-ing of the Americas. Say what? What? <laughs> what? No, really. What? Yep. So. Like how hyenas. Are, ah, the ones that live there. Those are monkeys. <laughs> No, these are um, hyenas that used to live in North America, but don't they anymore. They still have them. They had them in in um, on the hill there. No on way. Berkeley's campus. Really? Allegedly. Yeah. I bet I they were coyotes. About- no. No, I mean, this population of hyenas is not <laughs> around anymore. Are you trolling me? I'm not. I, hate but I think this. maybe somebody was trolling me. I think you've got there, trolled. No, I know there are hyenas somewhere in... It doesn't really make sense that they would be on Berkeley's campus. It makes more sense that they would be in L.A. No, wait, hold on. Mm. They were used as like models for some illustrated hyenas in like a film. Possibly Was it the, the Lion, Lion King? King. Yeah, well, that makes sense because if, if Disney animators went to a zoo and looked at hyenas. Yeah. I'm not saying they were wild. I'm saying they're like. Oh, kind of like feral, like they're okay. Well, also there was an alligator found in a pond near where I'm from last week. Huh? Just this has been Amber's animals. How'd they get there? <laughs> Segment. Well, I yeah, want to talk about so, how these somebody, particular. Hold on. I wanna, okay. Somebody found a full-on alligator in a pond. Yeah, in like Marion County, like. West Virginia. No, that's they don't not live where in West Virginia. Go. No, I know. But I it know was that. like an adult one, and it was there being like, I don't know why I'm here either. And I was just like, <laughs> Yep. Okay, tell me about hyenas that may or may not be on Berkeley's campus. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I need you and all the listeners to know that hyenas are more closely related to cats than they are to dogs. What? Yeah. What? No. I mean, they're not. What? They are they are not cats. I'm not saying that they are Do felines. Do I know what a hyena looks like? Have I been thinking of coyotes the whole time? No, I, hyenas do look at first glance. They do look very dog-like and they live in a pack structure like wild dogs and, you know, wolves and stuff. But genetically, phylogenetically, they are more closely related to cats. Which you can kind of see if you look at at Wait, their I'm faces. Gonna, I'm going to look at one. Look up a baby hyena because they're really cute with the big uh, ears. Also, hyenas have some really amazing and unique physiology and like hormonal stuff that goes on, especially in the females. And they they live in like matriarchal groups and it's really neat. 
and their jaws are amazing. Hyenas are really cool, and I think they get kind of the short end of the stick a lot of times, mostly because they were cast as villains in The Lion King. So we can move on now. This comes from Haaretz, and I really enjoyed this article because of its sassy tone, so (laughs) get ready. Hyenas, the misunderstood relatives of the cat family that can be found scavenging carcasses from Africa to India, once ranged much further. Five million years ago, these intrepid filiforms also thronged the Americas, which posed quite the paleontological conundrum. How on earth did they get there? A new analysis... Huh? Boats. Hyena boats. A new analysis of an old discovery in the annals of hyenahood solves the mystery. Exactly two fossilized teeth were discovered in Yukon Territory in Canada, confirming that hyenas existed in the Arctic as well. During ice ages, when ocean levels were low, they crossed the Beringia land bridge that connected Asia and America, says a new study led by the University at Buffalo, published in the journal Open Quaternary. Let it be noted that the four species of hyena existing today, one being the termite-eating aardwolf, are a, are a pathetic remnant of what had once been a magnificent family. A little judgy, Haaretz. There used to be over a hundred hyena species, and, rather like early humans, these animals were on the move. Thriving in Arctic conditions, however, was thought to be beyond their capacities. In fact... The two teeth in question have been found in the 1970s, and from the get-go, the first paleontologist to study them thought that they belonged to hyenas. But closer analysis would wait for nearly half a century, mainly because the teeth were flung into a drawer in Ottawa's Museum of Nature, and that's where they stayed, until paleontologist Jack Sang revisited the topic. Until now, nobody thought the powerful, versatile animals could possibly live that far north during the Ice Age. But they did! And it wasn't some sort of hairy hyena parallel to the woolly mammoth. It's good old Chasmoporthetes, otherwise known, maybe Chasmoporthetes, yeah? Otherwise known as the running hyena because of their unusually long legs. Chasmoporthetes is now extinct, but from, al- from almost 5 million years ago to a mere 780,000 years ago, it thronged throughout it's Africa. the second time and- they used thronged in this yeah. article. Yep, thronged. Circle WC. Thank you, editorial staff. It thronged. It raged. It raged. <laughs> Gentlemen, let us rage. We are here to rage. No, the, the hyenas thronged. Uh, they stopped it. Stop saying it. They done thronged through Africa and Eurasia, and as we see, everywhere its paws could go, ranging as far south as Mexico. This is the extent of what we know now. It may come to light that they still traveled further south than that. We just don't have the evidence. So this has been fun. Talking about cute little creatures. Mm-hmm. But but don't worry, I'm here to ruin it. All aboard. Yay! Amber's train <laughs> to Bummerville. All stops. Population, you and us. <laughs> and my dog, who's napping again. The thing is, climate change is real. I just turned my chair around. <laughs> the thing is, kids. Hey, guys. Let's wrap. <laughs> climate change is real. And if you didn't know that, go listen to our episode from the week before last. The polar ice caps are melting. Sea levels are on the rise. Everything's getting hotter. We're all going to die. Okay. But- <laughs> Not in the script. <laughs> and that is especially impactful for coastal and Arctic archaeology. For obvious reasons, which I will now tell you about. Mm-hmm. 
First up, we got some uh, ice milk. Yep. Yep. The work of, is it Anne? Yeah, yeah. This is, this okay. is a, an excerpt from a very long piece in Smithsonian Magazine. Okay. Um, so we're talking about the work of Anne Jensen to protect and preserve the Inupiaq site of Wolakpa. Um, at the world's edge, the Arctic coastline is on the front lines of climate change. As the length of time... As the length of time ice stays fastened to it has plummeted, the shoreline here has eroded faster than almost anywhere else in the world. Two years ago, villagers alerted Jensen to a storm that had wiped out about half of the Wallachpa site. The rest could be erased soon, she says, when the storms whip up again. Saving Wallachpa properly would require months of encampment, dedicated freezers, and soil engineers, but there's no money for all of that. Quote, well, she says, quote, but you got to try. We need to get this data now, end quote. She's, she's known up here on Alaska's North Shore, North Slope for her thoroughness and respect for local traditions and perhaps above all her tenacity. Exhibit number one, this five-day mini excursion, a Hail Mary dig to document and preserve a few artifacts on a shoestring budget. Indigenous Alaskans have coped with eroding coasts for centuries or more. In 1852, locals told British Captain Rochefort, mcguire yeah yep (laughs) that erosion forced their grandparents to move nuvuk more than two kilometers inland so the community was concerned though not entirely surprised when in the 1990s human remains began to poke out of a bluff along the nuvuk beach the disintegrating coastline was claiming a graveyard that was once far inland Jana Hacharek, director of Inupiaq Education for the North Slope, says, quote, the wishes of the community were to see the bones reinterred near where they were originally buried. Uh, following careful procedures specified by village elders, a team of volunteers and students led by Jensen since 1997 reinterred the bones. The team has subsequently found and reburied dozens more. Um, Hacharek continues to say, Anne has always been very consultative. She consults with elders and community members about how to proceed. She's helped the community tremendously. A debate over which parts of a site to excavate is meaningless if the site disappears entirely. In 2013, after a summer storm slammed the coast, hunters reported seeing wooden structures protruding from a bluff at Wallachpa. For Jensen, the site has special scientific value. Unlike other sites, such as Nuvuk, where the occupation record includes gaps, archaeologists believe indigenous people continuously hunted, fished, and camped at Wallachpa for millennia. That makes comparisons of flora, fauna, and human culture particularly telling. Its cultural significance is deep, too, says Hacharik. Quote, people continue to use it today. It's a very important waterfowl hunting site in the spring and a regular camping spot. End quote. Uh, and so... The name of the site in um, the modern Inupiaq language is Ualikpa. Yeah, Ualikpa, um, something like that, yeah. Which means, quote, Western Settlement Entrance. So, um, Some of the last elders to live at Ualikpa remembered complaining about the smell of ancient sea mammal oil in the sod huts. Wow. Yeah, so um, like they used it for light and stuff, and it and yeah. it, they had been occupied for so long that it had like seeped yeah. into the walls. Yeah. Wow. But the following fall, after a storm, Jensen was crestfallen to find the area of Wallachpa she had excavated completely gone. Uh, 
In a damage report she wrote following the storm, she mentioned that the exposed soil allowed a, allowed looters to steal an ice pick, a bucket made of baleen, and possibly a couple of human skulls. Mm. Erosion, however, was the main enemy. Um, she wrote, quote, we need to find funds for a field season next year if we do not want to risk p- losing precious cultural heritage. Uh, the rest of the Lakpa could disappear at any moment, but at least one archaeologist in northern Alaska wasn't yet willing to concede defeat. The story of Jensen's work at Wolakpa goes on, and we'll have the whole piece linked in our show notes. It's a common story, unfortunately. Um, not enough funding, unstable sites, and the continuing loss of cultural material that could teach us something. But far more importantly, it's material that has deep significance for the descendant communities still living in the area. Yeah, absolutely. And so the work of Jensen and archaeologists like her who are doing their best to work with these descendant communities and simultaneously preserve some of that heritage and, and learn from it is, is, you know, deeply commendable and amazing. Should yeah. be given all the funding. <sighs> or just any. Yeah, some. Some funding. Yep. Yep. Um, so now, speaking of Arctic projects, a project that I worked on a little bit and one that is trying to answer some questions about sea ice in some very cool ways. So this is the Unalaska Sea Ice Project, or USIP, that is so being led. So it's like like the House Committee on Unalaskan Activities? <laughs> sure. It's, it's being led by one of my mentors and one of our fellow Bryn Mawr alums, Dr. Catherine yeah. West, at Boston University. So she's collaborating with several other researchers from various institutions and trying to test whether sea ice has ever extended as far down as the Aleutian Islands. So that's that little tail of islands that trails off of the southwestern coast of Alaska. And so specifically, this project centers on the island of Unalaska, which does not mean not Alaska. It just Alaska is a word and Unalaska is that word with another syllable added to it, which is a different word. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not, not Alaska. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's cool because Alaska means something. It's a descriptive, like geographic term. It has to do with, it's like the place where the ocean meets the, the land in a certain way. Like it describes movement of waves and then the unsyllable adds some meaning to that. But anyway, <laughs> Fun facts. So basically, this is this is where this project comes from. Some of the archaeological faunal material that has come from Unalaska Island comes from two types of seals. One of them, the bearded seal, magnificent whiskers, uh, prefers non-icy waters, likes to hunt in, in open waters. And then the other, the ringed seal, likes to do its hunting on ice flows. So if both species are popping up in the middens, which are the trash piles, basically, of uh on Alaska Island, what was it like there, right? If both populations of seals were present and being hunted, was one group of seals super out of their usual zone or was there sea ice there at some point? So the seals are just one piece of the puzzle. So the USIP project is trying to figure out if sea ice ever extended as far down as as the Aleutians. (laughs) The other piece of evidence comes from Amber I want you to make the sound effect butter clams good job <laughs> and this is from an article I wrote 
shameless self-promotion. I write for sapiens.org, which is a great online anthropology journal. And I wrote this piece after I collaborated with Catherine West and some of her other researchers, including a graduate student named Christine Bassett, who is awesome and whose research uh, I'm going to talk about here on the butter clams. So, again... The dulcet tones of the butter clam. It's mid-August, 2017, but the temperature in Unalaska, one of the Aleutian Islands that trails off of the western Alaskan coast, is a brisk 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Christine Bassett, a graduate student in geology at the University of Alabama, is preparing to dive in the 40-degree water of a Mocknock spit. Protected by a neoprene dry suit and laden with nearly 100 pounds of scuba gear, Bassett hopes her dive will yield live butter clams, an unlikely key to understanding patterns of human behavior thousands of years in the past. At first glance, the butter clam, taxonomic name, Saxodomus gigantea, so like domey rock, giant domey rock, right? An unassuming bivalve. Yes, it is an unassuming bivalve. Found in the Pacific Ocean... Sounds charming. <laughs> found in the Pacific Ocean from Alaska down to Central California, butter clams are large, up to five inches across, and have a bulky shell tinted a buttery yellow. From whence the name. Prized as a food, they're dug commercially and for sport, and in some places they're farmed. However, wild butter clams can pose a significant hazard to those who wish to consume them, because they sometimes absorb harmful toxins from the algae they eat, and a small amount can prove deadly. In warmer water, the algae containing these toxins will often bloom, increasing rapidly and immensely in population size, meaning that those clams can absorb a lot more of that toxin. And so when those blooms occur, it's then that eating these clams can be lethal. Also, if anyone out there is looking to form a band, lethal clams. Just saying. Hundreds of butter clam shells appear in the middens, or trash heaps, of archaeological sites on Unalaska, indicating that the local inhabitants regularly made meals of the clams. Izzy is digging behind. What's your cat behind. doing? She's digging <laughs> behind my computer. What are you I doing? Izzy, no. Did you hear the key? Hi, pumpkin. Hi, pumpkin. Yeah, she's really... Yep. She's really going for it. Hey. Oh. <laughs> Such a little turd. Oh, oh, you're going to close my computer? Okay. Oh, no, no. no, no. Oh. <laughs> Lethal clams. Yep, 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 yep. It is possible that the waters around the Aleutians were cold enough to prevent harmful algae blooms, or perhaps the food was worth the risk. Understanding ocean temperatures and their effect on the people of the Aleutians is the key focus of Christine Bassett's work. The part of the butter clam that is most interesting to geologists like Bassett and the archaeologists with whom she collaborates is the shell. As they grow, butter clams absorb carbon and oxygen isotopes from the water and incorporate them into their shells. The percentages of these isotopes in the water shift as temperatures fluctuate. Therefore, as the clams build their shells, they essentially produce a record of the temperature of the water surrounding them. Sampling the butter clam shells for isotope testing is an extremely delicate process. Oh. To extract the information she needs from the clams, Bassett drills along the growth lines of each butter clam shell with a half millimeter bit. She then transfers the microscopic amount of shell dust to a vial for testing. A single ill-timed breath, wobble, or sneeze could destroy a sample. Don't your cat around. (laughs) 
She destroys everything. Bassett will use the modern butter clams she collects on her dives, along with modern water temperature data from Unalaska, to calibrate the isotopes in the modern clam shelves with water temperature. She will use this calibration, which researchers sometimes refer to as a clam thermometer, to calculate water temperature from the clam shells found in ancient middens. So basically, those archaeological clams should then provide a record of what ocean temperatures were like when those clams were growing, which is neat. It is neat. Yeah. So I have a question. Uh-huh. I have a clam question. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll try. So, okay. So this, like, this toxic algae. Yeah. That's just a thing? There's mm-hmm. just, like, poisonous algae that mm-hmm. isn't our fault? It just no. is? No, no, no. It just has toxins that, that humans can't, and actually lots of animals can't process, and it's toxic. It and then to produce a chemical. And so sometimes there are blooms and if the water's warm enough, the, the populations go, all right, it's like ideal conditions for them. And so the, the amount of algae expands a huge okay. amount. So that's how it's our fault. Well, now, yeah. With that those part, blooms. Yes. And like the blooms that are exacerbated. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Nature, man. Right. Nature. Hyenas related to cats. Algae's got Don't poison. They're so cute. So the baby, cute. The baby art wolf. Okay, so listeners, we could have gone in so many directions with Arctic archaeology, and in fact, we will. Or as you wrote, so many direction. (sighs) I'm so tired. (laughs) I missed an S. Listeners, we could have gone so many direction (laughs) with so many much direction (laughs) with Arctic archaeology. And in fact, we will in the near future. There is tons of material here from the ethnographies and stories of different cultural groups to some of the super not cool early, quote, archaeology that happened here to the archaeology of polar expeditions that went horribly wrong. So stay tuned and stay cool, friends. And courtesy of Dr. Catherine West, uh, we got a couple book club recommendations So one is one I'd like to read, but so it's called The Earth is Faster Now, and it's a classic on indigenous observations of climate change. But I looked it up. It's really tough to find. It's like two hundred and fifty plus dollars on Amazon. So if if you've got access to a local academic library, uh, maybe you can get your hands on that. But in the interest of um, sort of. Yeah, I'll include the world cat entry for it. Oh, thank you. So that folks can see where it is. And so in the interest of also mentioning something maybe a little more accessible, um, Catherine also recommended a book called The Last Imaginary Place by Robert McGee. Um, And McGee is spelled M-C-G-H-E-E. So Irish clarified butter. (laughs) Good night, everybody. That's going to do it for us this week. Thank you, as always. So much. For listening. We'll be back in your ear soon with new episodes, uh, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, and wherever else you get those sweet, 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 sweet pods. Mm. Mm. And you can help us out by leaving reviews and stars at all those places and recommending us to everyone you know. Oh, I was just agreeing. Yeah. Find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast, on Twitter at at Dirt Podcast, (laughs) and on Instagram at at The Dirt Pod. And all of that is together at our website thedirtpod.com and you can email us are you a butter clam email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com yep and for you and all our other 
little butter clams. We like to put out extra bonus content for our Patreon subscribers. So if you want to support the podcast and get access to bonus goodies like video content for as little as a dollar a month, you can do that by signing up at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.